The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Acts chapter 10, and when you've found your place, I'm going to invite you again to stand, and we're going to read God's word, uh, standing out of respect for his word. So please stand once you've found your place. Acts chapter 10, and beginning at verse number 1. It says, Now there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a certain tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had departed, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who are sorry, a of in one in constant attendance. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And the next day, as they were in their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. And while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he beheld the sky opened up and a certain object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But arise, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. And Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day he entered Caesarea. Nor Cornelius was waiting for them and, was, and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when it came about that Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man." And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection for when I was sent for. And so I asked for what reason you have sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. 
He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And so I sent to you immediately and you have come. Sorry, you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to to testify that this is the one who had been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Please have a seat. The story in our text this morning stands as a great landmark in salvation history. To understand the height of the significance of this text, we need to take some time this morning to kind of zoom out to see the storyline of the Bible from a high perspective and then kind of zoom back in and focus on the text itself. The message of the Bible is a message for all humanity. God deals with the problems of the whole of humanity in Scripture. God reveals himself to us and describes mankind's great problem. And it's this. God is holy, righteous, just, and good. But man is sinful and wicked and separated from God because of sin. Man's inevitable end is to face God's judgment for sin. And these are problems that are universal to all of mankind. And so from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 where God begins to create man, all the way to verse 11, sorry, verse 32 of chapter 11, God deals with humanity as a whole. The line of Adam's godly descendants is God's witness to himself, to mankind. Abel, Seth, Enoch, Noah, Terah, and Abram, they're all God's witnesses to the humanity that was there. And beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, God moves to dealing primarily with one family. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, it forms kind of an opening parenthesis of God's dealing with Abraham's family and then a nation. And from Genesis 12 all the way through the Bible's history to Acts chapter 10, God deals primarily with the Hebrews, with Israel, and with the Jews. And then Acts 10 and 11 It's the longest section of narrative covering one main event. It's kind of like the closing parenthesis because at that point, God moves from dealing with just one group of people out to dealing with all of humanity. Not exclusively dealing with the Jews for all that time, but primarily. So Genesis, sorry. So from dealing with all humanity back in Genesis 1 through 11 to dealing primarily with Israel and then back to humanity from Acts chapter 10 and on. So this chapter in our Bibles is a very significant, a very key landmark in the history of salvation. In Genesis 12, God promised to give Abram a seed. And we know that has two fulfillments. Isaac became his initial seed, his son, from whom grew out the nation of Israel. But in a far bigger, far greater sense, if you go to the book of Galatians and chapter 3, you see there that the seed is Christ. There's a greater fulfillment of that. God promised to give Abram a seed. He promised to make him a nation and that him, in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And of course, that is indeed through Christ. 
The Hebrew race is first identified with Abram in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 13. He's called Abram the Abiru, or Abram the Hebrew is how we would say it. In Genesis 12 to 50, those long chapters there, Abram's family grows from two people to 70 plus persons, the descendants of Jacob, and then they go off to Israel, or to Egypt, as you know, into slavery. 400 years go by, and Exodus 1, all the way to Exodus 14, God delivers Abram's family, Israel, from slavery in Egypt, and he forms them into a nation of kings and priests to God. If you've got a little note sheet in front of you, you can see there what we're talking about. God had seven purposes that I can see for creating Israel as a nation, and they're listed on your note sheet. First of all, God created them as a nation that they might be a nation or a kingdom of priests to God. But sadly, Israel rebelled against God, and so only the priest or the, the tribe of Levi became the Levitical priest. The rest of them couldn't be priests. Secondly, God created Israel so that his holy law might be given to them. And we see that in Exodus 19 and 20. And then it carries on through Exodus as more and more laws are given and added. But sadly, Israel broke God's law repeatedly all through the Old Testament. Thirdly, we can see that God created Israel so that his covenants might be given and made. And we see that particularly in Exodus 19 through 24. But Israel sadly, broke God's covenant through idolatry. Uh, the fearful men that get together every Friday morning at 7.30, we got talking about this as we were looking at Jeremiah 11, verse 10, and Jeremiah 31 and 32, and we saw there how God laments that they broke his covenant. Fourth reason why God created Israel that I can see is that his promises might be received. You read through Deuteronomy and on through the Old Testament, you see all these promises given to Israel. But sadly, Israel largely ignored the promises of God. Fifthly, Israel was given, was created that they might be God's witness to the Gentile nations around them. But Israel failed seeing their position as God's people, a cause for pride, not the basis for humility. Sixthly, His inspired word through his prophets was preserved as the prophets wrote it down. The scrolls were kept. And so we have the whole Old Testament is a beautiful exposition of who Christ is. God created his people for that purpose. And the seventh, the greatest, and the best purpose of all was that God might bring his anointed Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. And sadly, Israel rejected And handed him over to be crucified. But the great truth is, where Israel failed in all of God's purposes for their creation, Christ did much more succeed. Christ fulfilled all the law's demands, and he did it for us. Christ is God's perfect witness and revelation of God to the world. Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 that all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the covenants. But even more than that, even better than that, Christ is the mediator of a superior covenant founded on better promises. So from Genesis 12 to Acts chapter 10, God is dealing primarily with the Hebrews, with the Jewish people, but not exclusively. There's multiple references to God's inclusion of the Gentiles. In Genesis 38, Tamar the Canaanite is included, and she winds up in the ancestry line of Jesus. In Joshua 2 through 5, Rahab the Canaanite is included in the people of Israel, and she winds up again in Jesus' ancestry. In Ruth 1 to 4, what do we see? Ruth the Moabitess, who according to the law could not be included in the people of God, I believe for 10 generations. And she's included because God has grace. Listen, God always intended to include the Gentiles amongst his elect people. God repeatedly promised Gentile inclusion throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you four examples. I won't give you them all and I'll tell you why. Genesis 49, verse 10, the Bible says that all nations will obey God's future king. Who's he talking about? Christ. 
In Psalm 2, verse 8, the Gentile nations will be the inheritance of God's king. Who's he talking about? Christ. In Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4, the Gentile nations will say to each other, let's go up to God's house and let's be taught of the Lord that we might walk in his ways. The Gentile nations will do that. I'm not giving you all of them. You know why? Because there's 91 Old Testament statements about the Gentiles' inclusion in the people of God. I know. I counted them all. It took me about 20 minutes going through the list. 91 times. They're promised in the Old Testament. One of Dr. Luke's purposes in writing Acts and Luke is to reassure the Gentile believers that our inclusion in the people of God was always God's intended purpose. Growing up, God bless the dear folks I grew up with, but I was told repeatedly that the New Testament church was a plan B. We were an unexpected parenthesis in salvation history. That is not true. We are here included in God's people by God's eternal design. And God's gospel then unveils for us Jesus coming and living and dying and rising again. Christ achieved salvation for all God's people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, wise and foolish. Praise God, he includes the fools or I wouldn't be here, right? Don't laugh, he's including you too, right? Praise God, salvation for all mankind was achieved by Christ on the cross, And then both at the end of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts, it describes, I'll try it in English, it describes Jesus' commissioning of the apostles to continue his work of witness, first to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, and we see that in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 9. Secondly, the Gospel goes to the Samaritans. They're the half-Jew, half-Gentile peoples that they had a great big separation and distinction from. But now the gospel goes to them. And thirdly, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And all of us this morning should be so glad for Acts chapter 10 and how it unfolds. Because all of us, to my knowledge, we're all Gentile people. And praise God, the gospel reached us. But it was always God's purpose. Listen. God has always been at work to redeem and preserve a witness to his salvation, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And now here in our text, we can see God bringing Peter, his human leader of his church, to understand a radically new idea for Peter, that God has declared the unclean to be clean. That God has reconciled both Jew and Gentile to himself. That God's grace for salvation extends to and includes the Gentiles. I want you to notice, beloved, in our text, the works of God to bring a somewhat stubborn Peter to understand what God is doing. Notice first that God reveals himself. We see that in the first couple of verses, 9 down to verse uh, 13, 14 there. God reveals himself to those who are dedicated and faithful in prayer. In verses 1 to 8, God revealed himself to Cornelius, which we saw two weeks ago. Peter goes up on the rooftop to spend time in prayer before the Lord, and he falls into what my Bible calls a trance. And the word is ecstasis. It has the idea of an ecstatic, and it's translated elsewhere as amazed or astonished or here as trance. And what it means is, That by God's intervention, Peter's normal conscious state was suspended so that something supernatural might be revealed to him by God or by an angel. Peter was not unconscious. He was obviously deep in thought immediately afterwards, and he retained a very clear memory of what he saw. Peter was not in an out-of-body state or anything like that. It was a miraculous occurrence and not something we should have any expectation of experiencing ourselves. It was a special moment for a highly significant reason, God's revelation. In verse 17, we see that Peter knew he was seeing a vision. Peter recognized that this vision is God's revelation of a significant message of God to him. Notice in verse 11, 
Peter saw the sky opened up. It was an indication of a revelation that was coming. In Luke 3, 21 and 22, the heavens were opened before God spoke in regard to Christ. In Acts 7, verse 56, Stephen saw the heavens open and he revealed that he saw Jesus standing at God's right hand. And Peter here sees the heavens open. He sees the vision. He hears a voice speaking and responding. The episode is repeated three times to make a point. God is speaking and it's important. In Hebrew literature, they didn't use highlighters and bold text and underline. Uh, in fact, Hebrew doesn't even have capital letters. It has lowercase letters. That's right, isn't it, Chris? They're all one case. Yeah, so there's, there's no distinction between upper and lower case. I did take Hebrew, and I did get great rides, but it was many years ago, and I've forgotten most of it, so don't worry about it. But Hebrew is all in one level, right? It's all one case line. You can't emphasize through capital letters. So what they would do to bring emphasis is they would repeat things. So when you see Samuel, Samuel, Abraham, Abraham, Paul, Paul, or holy, 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 three times, is great emphasis. And this vision happens so Peter can see it three times. But what I found really interesting is the number of times three things happen in Peter's life. It's pretty amazing. Three times in total, Peter has refused Jesus' words and actions. That's scary. He refused to accept Jesus' death in Matthew 16. He refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet in John 13. And here he refuses three times to rise, kill, and eat. But in all three situations, Peter later submitted to Jesus' words. And Jesus' words, of course, were proven true. Three times. Peter denies knowing the Lord Jesus in Matthew 26. Three times Peter is asked by Jesus if he loved him. And three times he was commanded by Jesus to feed Jesus' flock. That's significant. Because you go back to John 10 and verse 16 and what did Jesus say? He said, I have other sheep, not of this fold. Them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice and become one flock with one shepherd. And I wonder if Peter's up on the rooftop and he's seeing all this happening and he's starting to unpack in his mind what's going on, what's happening here. And as the situation becomes real to him and he understands it, I wonder if he thought, yeah, I remember the Lord's words. And feeding his flock didn't just mean being the Jews. It meant going to the Gentiles and preaching the gospel to them also. By way of application, beloved, God revealed himself to Peter as he prayed. And beloved, it is true that those who devote time and effort in the presence of God in prayer with the Lord are often the ones to whom God reveals himself. Remember Zacharias? He's in the temple. He's offering prayer at the time of prayer, and God revealed himself. Remember Cornelius up on his rooftop? I think he was on the rooftop. uh, Praying. He was in prayer for sure. And God revealed himself. God revealed himself to Peter in this one-off, one-time ecstatic experience. But the point is this. God reveals himself to us through his completed word as we read and meditate and pray and think about those words. As the Spirit of God draws our attention to his word. Listen, when you're reading your Bible, don't read an autopilot, right? Got your Bible out and you got your phone there and you're reading along and, you know, the phone goes off and you quick look at the phone. Then you go back to your Bible and, you just, and your eyes are just moving over the words. You ever discover that? You get halfway through a paragraph and go, I have no idea what I just read. And you got to go back and read it again. Don't read an autopilot. Here's another tip. Take what you're reading and reflect it back to God in prayer. I did one day just just for an exercise. I took a piece of paper and I wrote all the things that all my readings, I read in four places each day in my Bible and a reading program. I wrote all the things down that I learned about the Lord from those texts. I filled two pages, took them and turned around and used them for prayer. Prayed about it. Listen, God reveals himself to the one who prays. God reveals himself through his completed word as we read and meditate and pray over those words. Pray and ask questions of God as you read. Don't read passively. Read actively. Ask God, what did you mean? 
Often I'm driving around, I have the sermon text of the week in my head, and I'm asking the Lord, Lord, what did you mean? What is the message for me as a person and for us as a church from this text? What is it you want us to know and understand and believe and do from this text? God speaks and reveals himself to the one who prays. Secondly, I want you to notice that God reveals him, or sorry, reconciles himself to his people. They and we are reconciled to God and to each other. Now you ask, where is that in this text? Now seeing it is not plainly obvious to start with. But when you, you see this, what we're seeing is like the, the icing on the very top of a cake. Without being able to see the cake beneath it. It takes some unpacking and some careful attention to it. In a sense... God's statement to Peter is kind of the end, the last point in a long chain of events. So in order to understand what's happening, we have to kind of back up and see the chain of events behind them. So look it down at your Bibles and notice verses 11 to 16. Verse 11, 16, what do we see? Peter sees a sheet-like object at four corners held lowered down. Inside the sheet are four-footed animals and crawling creatures and birds. And without any further detail, we can conclude that there's both clean and unclean creatures inside that sheet. And Peter is told, rise, kill, and eat. Peter refuses. He's never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And God's response is, what God has cleansed, don't consider unholy or common. Peter's refusal is in keeping with the dietary laws given in both Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 20, verses 23 to 26. Peter's refusal to kill and eat the clean animals is also in keeping with the Old Testament laws regarding the slaughtering of animals for food. They weren't free to do it wherever and however they liked. Now, the purpose of those Old Testament dietary laws was to keep the people of God separated from the idolatrous pagan influence of the surrounding nations. Israel was to be a people holy to the Lord, H-O-L-Y, holy to the Lord. Sadly, they weren't. The ungodly influence of those pagan peoples was at its greatest during fellowship over a shared meal or a food together. You know, you sit down, you share the food, you eat, you drink, you talk. There's a gained understanding of each other as you eat together. One of the things I love about coming to church on these mornings is we celebrate communion. We, in a sense, eat a meal together and celebrate and fellowship together with God around that table. I love having people in my home sitting down around the table, and we talk for hours. I'm a round-the-table kind of guy. We have a great living room with some nice chairs. I walk by it all the time. But I'd far rather sit around the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and just talk. And as you do that, there's a fellowship, there's a relationship back and forth, and you grow in understanding. You share together ideas, beliefs, practices. Eating together in their situation could lead to the shared practice of idolatry. And eating a social meal was often accompanied by idol worship. And so God, I am struggling with my voice, sorry. God's desire in establishing the dietary laws was the separation and the holiness of his people Israel. The Old Testament issues of clean and unclean meant that anyone who participated in eating ceremonially unclean food became ceremonially unclean themselves, right? So the Gentiles who ate unclean foods were, to the people of Israel, unclean like the food that they ate. But now, as God reveals in his vision and explanation to Peter, God's cleansing of all foods meant that the Gentiles who ate of those unclean foods were no longer considered ceremonially unclean. God's cleansing of all foods meant Jew and Gentile could now eat together and fellowship together and worship together. God's cleansing meant that Peter and all the Jews could and must not any longer consider the Gentiles to be unclean. Hence, Peter says in verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any animal, 
No, he says man unclean or unholy. Peter was making the connection between the rooftop as he went and he thought about it, came down the stairs and talked to those guys. He invited them in. They had a meal. They ate together. They slept there. They got up in the morning. They went all the time. He's thinking. By the time he gets to Cornelius and company, he's kind of unraveling what's happening. And he says, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. I love Peter. He's dumb like a brick, right? You just read the stories about him. I can identify with Peter all the time. I was like, there's my guy. I can relate to him. Dumb like a brick, but he was getting the point. It was not that the foods were the issue. It was his separation from the Gentiles. And here's the point. God has removed and abolished the thing, the ordinances that kept Jews and Gentiles alienated. In order to reconcile two parties, you have to remove the thing that keeps them separate, right? You have a dispute over land or property or something. You've got to resolve the dispute so the parties can be reconciled. And so God has removed the thing that kept Jew and Gentile apart. God has provided reconciliation of Jew and Gentile both to himself and to each other. The question you may be asking, and you definitely should ask it, is how did this happen? And I'm so glad you're asking that. Take your Bibles and flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verses, I'm going to read verse 11 to verse 16. I think I put 15 in your note sheet, but it should be 16. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, down to verse 16. The Bible says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Paul is writing to Gentile Ephesian Christians. And what he says is that in the distant past, before their salvation, before God had done his work through Christ, they were separated from Christ, they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Those three statements are parallel. They're saying the same thing. They had no hope, and they were without God in the world. But in the immediate past, in the time of the Gospels, Christ brought the far-off Gentiles near by his blood. Christ's death reconciled his people to himself. And then Paul gives the explanation of it in verse 14. Christ is our peace. Meaning what? Meaning he is the central gathering point for all mankind to be reconciled to God. Christ made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one. Christ broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. You guys remember the story of the temple, the tabernacle? In the temple, there was a court of the Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile, you could go in there and you could lift up your hands and you could pray and you could enjoy worship of God. But it was behind a wall. And on the wall, there was a sign. If you go beyond this and you're not a Jew, expect to die because you will. That's not exactly what the sign says, but that's the sum total of it. You go outside of that court of the Gentiles, there was a wall. And Paul is saying, listen, what Christ has done is he is our peace. He's a central gathering point. He's brought both groups into one. And he did it by breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall. How did he do that? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contain ordinances. In other words, to simplify that, 
Jesus' suffering and death on the cross answered all the demands of the law, even the holiness demands contained in ordinances such as dietary laws so that Jew and Gentile could be reconciled. And Paul gives the purpose in verses 15 and 16, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man and thus establishing peace. Going back over to Acts chapter 10. On the basis of Christ's work on the cross, God has declared all unclean foods as clean. All the holiness laws are fulfilled in Christ. God is now drawing all men, regardless of race, color, language, or location, to himself. Why? Because Christ is our peace. Because we've been reconciled. Because those barriers have been torn down. God is now drawing us all together. God has indeed reconciled us to himself and to each other. So in perfect legal righteousness, God can say to Peter, rise and kill and eat the unclean animals. Because Christ has dealt with the problem. Peter, God can say to Peter, get up, go down, go with them without doubting. I've reconciled them to myself and I will receive them as they hear and believe and obey the message of the gospel. What a great God we have. What a salvation we have. Brother and sister, look to your left and look to your right. No, seriously, look to your left and look to your right. Look at all the people in this church. 28 nations. I'm one of four Aussie-born Aussies, and I don't even sound like it. It's great, right? We're all these different nations, all different colors, all backgrounds come together, and we come together around one thing, one person, Christ. And God did that. You want to be amazed by God, the grace of God? He reached out to us who deserve nothing And he dealt with all those issues and problems so he could say to Peter, get up, kill and eat, go down the road, go with them, preach the gospel, sit in their homes, eat their food, fellowship with them. You are now one in Christ. And brother and sister in Christ, as we come in a few minutes or a few hours, whenever I get finished this, to to go around the table and eat the communion and, and drink the little cup of juice, we are passing it. One of the reasons why I like seeing you passing the bread to each other and the the juice getting passed down is we're sharing together in Christ. It's more than symbolic. We are blood brothers and sisters because we have been bought by Christ's blood and joined to each other. My family relations will die when I die, but you guys... All of you will be my blood brothers and sisters for all of eternity. My condolences. I'm sorry. You're stuck with me, right? Look around. You're stuck with each other. That's the wonderful truth of what God is doing. Peter welcomes him into Simon's house. He eats the late afternoon meal with them. They lodge together. They get up. They go. And Peter, in his discussion with Cornelius, reveals his own journey from separation from Gentiles to acceptance of them. In verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. And with Peter's usual slowness, God bless him, to understand he's getting the point. And Cornelius relates to Peter his side of the reconciliation story. God revealing to him in prayer. God sending, telling him to send for Peter. And Cornelius relates their desire to Peter. I love Cornelius' words. Look what he says in verse 33. We are all here present before God. To hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem, which is still standing. We didn't gather in the court of the Gentiles, which we could have. We are here in this home, this Gentile home, in the presence of Almighty God, and we want to hear a word from the Lord. Time out for a sec. Why did you come to church this morning? Is their desire yours? Did you desire to come and hear a word from the living God? Not Not my mouth. Look at that. From the scriptures. That's their desire. 
They understood, even though they may be in their ignorance, they still understood something. They knew that something was different. And God was working to, to bring them close. And Peter finally fully understands. Notice what he says in verses 34 and 35. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Peter goes on to explain the word which God sent to the sons of Israel, preaching through Jesus. The Romans already know something of both John the Baptist and Christ. They know of Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. They already know how God had anointed Jesus. They knew of his healing the sick and casting out demons. And now, to what they already know, Peter adds that we apostles are witnesses of all the things that Jesus did in Judea and Jerusalem, it's south of them. But Jesus was put to death by hanging on a cross that God has raised him up on the third day. We have been ordered by Christ to preach to the people that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge. And, isn't that great? Praise God, didn't stop there. This Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge, and through Jesus, everyone who believes on him receives forgiveness of sins. And brothers and sisters in Christ, and those of you who don't know Jesus, if you're here this morning, that message stands today. God does not show partiality. God receives all who believe in him, who fear him, and do what is right in God's eyes. God does not show partiality. He doesn't divide on the basis of race and color and language. He had a purpose in Israel's creation and all that they did. There's a great purpose in that, but the purpose was far greater than just Israel. The purpose was the salvation of all mankind. All men, women, children from any background, from any nation on the face of the earth, from any people, any race, any ethnicity, from any lifestyle outside of Christ, we are all sinful before God. God's gospel is opened and proclaimed to be proclaimed to them all. God receives those who come in faith, believing God's word. My good friend Con often repeats to me Jesus' words, do you believe it? He's not challenging my faith. He's, he's just reminding me that's, that's the key point. Listen, do you first of all know the facts of salvation? If you don't, let me tell you. That God is holy and righteous and just and good. That mankind, you and me, are sinners without regard for God. Then Christ came as God's unique beloved son. That Christ, truly man and truly God, without sin, he was made to be sin for us. He died in our place to pay our sins penalty so we might be forgiven. This Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb for three days and three nights. This Jesus was raised by God from death. This Jesus has ascended to heaven and he is exalted to God's right hand. And Jesus Christ offers full forgiveness from sin. God now commands all men everywhere to repent of sin and believe in Christ for salvation. Do you believe that? Listen, I want to make a very careful distinction here. I don't mean, do you believe the facts of salvation? Do you believe in God? It's possible to know all the facts of salvation, to write theology papers and great books expounding all the facts of salvation. But do you believe in God? That's the difference. Because if you believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead, if your faith and your hope are firmly fixed in Christ, then you are forgiven of sin. You are indeed reconciled. We are indeed blood brothers and blood sisters. Notice that God also received those who fear him. And we cannot truly fear the Lord our God if we do not first believe in him and trust in him for salvation. But having believed in God for that salvation, the question is, brothers and sisters, are we living in reverential fear of the Lord? 
Are you and I so constantly amazed and astonished at so great a Savior and so great a salvation? You say, I want that fear. I want to live a God-fearing life. How do I do that? How do we develop a reverential awe and amazement and astonishment at God by meditating on God, on our Savior, on God's works of creation, of God's works of salvation? And brothers and sisters, I think it would do us all a great deal of good if we were to open the book of Revelation once in a while and meditate on God's judgment of sinners yet to come. He receives those who fear him. And God receives all those who do what is right. The Bible makes it clear that attempting to come to God and be received by God on the basis of my good works will never succeed. God sees our works of righteousness as filthy, stained, revolting rags. But the outflow, the product of a God-pleasing faith is works of righteousness, which Paul says God has prepared for us to do. Beloved, do you see in your life those faith-authenticating good works? We absolutely believe That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the faith that saves does not remain alone. Read the book of James, chapter 2 especially. It drives that point home. Our, Our faith is proven and displayed by the good works that we do in response to God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Drive that point home. But the faith that saves doesn't stay alone. It produces and develops in us good works in response to God. I I would say so much more about that, but just for time, we won't. Listen, what's the end result of this this time in God's work? What do we do with all this? For me personally, I just stand back and be amazed. Stand back absolutely astounded at what God has done. This great salvation that we have and we enjoy. Be amazed and be astounded, people of God. Be in speechless awe and wonder at the work of God to save you. Oh, but I deserve to be saved. (laughs) Oh, no, you didn't. God saved you because he loved you. Well, that must mean I'm worth something. I must be worth saving. No, God saved you because he loved you, because he loved you, because he loved you. That's it. God didn't see anything in us worth saving. But what God wanted to do was to take that which was absolutely worthless and save it and wash it and cleanse it and clothe it in beautiful white garments and display the glory of his grace found in each one of us. We're all displays, we're all pictures of God's amazing grace. And through all of eternity, Ephesians 1 tells us that we will be to the praise of the glory of his grace around his throne, praising God that he had grace upon you and upon me. That's why we're amazed. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. That's you and I, brother and sister. Be amazed. Be humbled by what God has done for you. Be humbled that God has revealed himself to you through his word. Be humbled and give thanks. Live your lives to the glory of God, for God has reconciled you to himself and to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's where we just got to pause for a sec. We come together as brothers and sisters. And we come together as reconciled brothers and sisters in Christ. God does not like it. He is not pleased, brother and sister, when differences remain, when contentions remain, when difficulties remain between brother and brother and brother and sister and sister and sister. It is very difficult, brother and sister in Christ, to come to the table to pick up that little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and remember the Lord when there is something between you and a brother or sister. So I urge you, I plead with you, go and make it right. Examine yourself before the Lord. Confess what needs to be confessed. 
Seek God's forgiveness and so eat. And resolve in your heart as soon as you have the opportunity to go and make what is wrong right. Why? Because when that unreconciled situation exists in a church, it becomes like a burr under a horse's saddle. I don't know if they have burrs in Australia, but they have in America. And if you leave a burr under a saddle and you ride the horse, it rubs and that little prickly thing gets into the horse's flesh and it causes irritation and infection and problem. Just like a sliver. I got a sliver years ago working in carpentry with red cedar into my finger and I couldn't get it out. And eventually it got infected so bad that it came out in a horribly way I won't describe to you. But that little tiny sliver made a huge problem because I left it there. Brother and sister in Christ, if there's an issue between you and a brother or you and a sister, I urge you with all my heart, we are reconciled by Christ's blood. We've got to put those things away and deal with them. Moving on. God has reconciled us through the work of Christ on the cross. He's reconciled us by answering and meeting all the law's demands against us. And Christ has removed the offense of our sin that we brought to God. Christ has met all the law's demands in perfect righteousness. God has extended his grace to us to declare us righteous in his sight, to redeem us and to save us, to adopt us and to close us with Christ's righteousness. Oh, beloved, what a God that we have. Amen? Amen. We're going to come... Now, at the end of our time of worship to the table, we're going to participate in a meal. And this table of fellowship speaks and preaches the gospel to us. It tells us of Christ's body given for us. It tells us of Christ's blood shed for us. It tells us of the fellowship, the reconciliation that we have with God himself as we partake symbolically of Christ in the bread and the juice. It tells us of the fellowship we have in Christ with each other as we share in the bread, passing it from hand to hand, each of us taking a little piece, all cut from the same loaf. We're fellowshipping in and we're sharing in Christ. Let's take a moment. I want to actually take a few moments, let you guys have some time just to think, to reflect, to pray in your own heart, and then what I'll do is I'll ask Mr. Taylor to come and give thanks for the bread in maybe about three, four minutes.